Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you for finding us where you found us, saving us through the work of your Holy Spirit by leading us to put our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our salvation. We thank you that you will always be God. You will always have your plan. We can always trust your plan. We thank you for your word, that it is always living and active, cuts us to the quick, lays everything bare before you, that you may start to go to work in our hearts. And may all the glory go to you. In Jesus' name, amen. In a world where we mostly spend our time thinking about raising kids and working jobs and paying bills and just taking care of the basic functions of life, we may not think about the effect that the simple geological movement of wind plays in our lives. But wind plays a much larger role in the world and how it affects our everyday lives than we might realize. In short, life on Earth could not exist without wind carrying energy and plant seeds and other things around the world. And God created wind to be a constant movement in the world by connecting it to the sun, heating the earth unevenly. This uneven, you're about to get a science lesson here, this uneven heating of the earth creates warm spots which have low level of air pressure and cool spots which have high level of air pressure. And as we all know, what does warm air do? Rise. It always rises. So when the warm air in an area of low pressure rises, air from another cooler and high pressure area rushes in to take its place. So what wind is, at its simplest understanding, is this rushing of air from a high pressure area coming in and taking the place of warm air that's rising in a low pressure area. What wind is, is air that's just constantly moving all over the world, being pulled and pushed by high and low pressure areas. Now it gets more complicated with a phenomenon known as the Coriolis, Coriolis effect which is how, the, I'm not going to make you memorize this, don't worry, and those in the back, you can probably barely see it, but it's how the Earth's rotation, along with the equator, bend which way the, the wind wants to go. So for us in the Northeast, this Coriolis effect produces westerlies, or wind that blows in a western direction, which explains why the majority of our storms here in the Peaberg area all come from east to west. What I found especially interesting is how you can see here how the trade winds uh, kind of circulate in this area right here. Anybody wonder what forms in that area most of the time? Hurricanes. So that's how we, not, not, now we can see how hurricanes easily form in that area because of the rotation of the trade winds there. In our passage this morning, Jesus mentioned something about the effect and the origin of wind. We'll see what Jesus is getting at and how he's connecting the concept of wind to our spiritual lives in a few minutes. But first, let's lead up to that. We focused our time last week on the beginning of a conversation that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. Now, there's a powerful reason why the Apostle John decided to include this conversation with Nicodemus in his gospel. 
And what was that? Nicodemus was the epitome of a highly intelligent, highly educated, and highly influential person in Jesus' world. Not only was he a rabbi, which meant he was very smart and very educated and passed that along to other people, but he was also a member of the Jewish governing council called the Sanhedrin, which meant he was very influential in that society. Nicodemus was also a member of the group of the Pharisees, a very conservative Jewish movement that sought to preserve the conservative Jewish way of life in an ever-increasing Roman, Greek, and therefore pagan world. We talked about last week how the Pharisees took it too far, though, and made the Jewish law what it was never supposed to be. And their desire to preserve the conservative Jewish way of life, they made the Jewish law, uh, they made the Jewish life all about the law and all about the law's rules. But like we've talked about, that's never the way God intended it to be when he gave Israel the law through Moses. He always wanted his people to love him and trust him with their lives first, which was the basis for their salvation, and then obey his commands out of their love for him, not the other way around. But the Pharisees had made it the complete opposite way of viewing life. For the Pharisees, Following the rules was the most important thing, not loving God nor loving people. And to the Pharisees, following the rules was so important that they tacked on a bunch of humanly created rules so that their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters didn't accidentally and unknowingly break any of God's original commandments. It was the very definition of hyper-legalism. For Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, any concept and any concept of salvation and entrance into the kingdom of God was based solely on how, you, how well you followed not only the, wall, the law, but all the other man-made rules tacked onto it. On top of that, Nicodemus saw the only legitimate religious conversion, that of being a pagan Gentile, being baptized into the Jewish faith. That's all Nicodemus could see. It certainly never, ever, ever entered his mind of an, th th this concept, that an already Jewish person get baptized in direct connection to repentance of sin. And yet that's exactly what John the Baptist had been preaching and doing for some time now. What Nicodemus sought to forget that of salvation and entrance into the kingdom of God, not having anything to do with your current identity or background, i.e. being Jewish or Gentile, and only being directly and crucially tied to repentance of sin, Jesus brought right back to the forefront in his conversation with Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus made the main point of John the Baptist's preaching that it didn't matter who anyone was in any way and that it, the only thing that mattered was whether or not one came to God in repenting of their life ruled by selfishness and sinful desires. That was the very first step towards God's forgiveness of that sin and therefore salvation from the payment of that sin, both physical death and hell and therefore entrance into his kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus is getting at when he says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water, meaning repentance, and the Spirit, 
meaning being indwelled by the Holy Spirit through repentance, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The water represents a baptism that publicly declares that someone has repented of their sin. And the Spirit is the Holy Spirit that is given to indwell someone after they accept Jesus as the substitute for and therefore Savior from their sins and make Him the King over the rest of their lives. This is huge because these are words straight out of Jesus' mouth, aren't they? You can't twist these. These are words straight out of Jesus' mouth. Jesus himself said there is only one way to enter God's kingdom of heaven. What does this do then? Then This immediately shuts down any belief that it doesn't matter what you believe, whether you're a Buddhist, Muslim, Taoist, Hindu, Jewish person, New Ageist, or you just think you're a good enough person to get into heaven based on your own perceived level of morality, as long as you're sincere. It shuts all of that down. Directly from the mouth of Jesus are the words that only if you come to God in repentance of the sin that you know separates you from him. And no amount of goodness you think you are or amount of good works will change that. And you take Jesus as the substitute who paid for your sin on the cross and lives again to offer you forgiveness from that sin, lives again for us to serve him as king over the rest of our lives, and lives again to give us the gift of the Holy Spirit as a 100% assurance of eternal home when we die. That's it. That's it. In direct contradiction to what Nicodemus believed as a Pharisee, it had nothing to do with whether you were Jewish or Gentile, and it's exactly the same today. It has nothing to do with your past, nothing to do with your background, who your parents were, what sins you struggle with the most, your ethnicity, race, political leaning, or perceived identity. It has nothing to do with any of that. It has only to do with one, anyone coming to God in repentance or turning away from their sin and taking Jesus as their Savior and King. That's it. When we come to God in that repentance and with that acceptance of Jesus into our lives as the Savior from that sin and the King over those lives, the Bible says that God immediately sends the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, to come make a home within us, to guide us, comfort us, Convict us, teach us, transform us and our families, and gradually change the whole way we see ourselves, our loved ones, and the whole way we see the world. This is what Jesus meant when he told Nicodemus that one must be born again or born from above or born of water and the Spirit. It's a spiritual birth and therefore a new birth is how God transforms us to be different people and to see everything differently in the way he wants us to see them. That identification of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit with those who have been spiritually born again or born from above is what Jesus focuses on next in his conversation with Nicodemus, which is what we're focusing on today. Immediately after what Jesus says about the followers of, the, of Jesus being given the gift of the Holy Spirit, he says this in verse 6. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 6. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 3. 
or look it up on your favorite Bible smartphone app. We're going to start in verse 6. We read this. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What in the world is Jesus getting at there? Here is pointed out by one biblical scholar, Jesus only gives two classifications of humanity, flesh and spirit, right? That which is flesh is flesh, that which is spirit is spirit. See, the world, especially today, likes to divide people up by any means it can, the haves and the have-nots, racial divisions, Republicans versus Democrats, 500 million sexual identities and orientations, people who have quality of life, those deemed by others not to have quality of life, and even a designation if you're even a human being based on whether or not you're still inside of a womb or have been born. The world loves to classify and divide people up by different life circumstances and identity and identities. But in John chapter 3, verse 6, Jesus only divides people up into two categories. And they're really the only two categories that matter at all. Those two categories are those who are born of the Spirit. That is, those who have repented and given their lives to Jesus and are therefore being regenerated and transformed by the Holy Spirit and those who never come to that place in their lives. The only two categories of humanity that matter at all and that Jesus even gives. Those who never come to that place in their lives are those described as being of the flesh. They live their lives to the very end based only on what they can determine about life through their humanity, finite human way of thinking, and five senses. They never view life through an empowerment of the Holy Spirit because they never have the Holy Spirit. And since the Holy Spirit is the down payment on our heavenly home, what will they never inherit at death? That heavenly home. There are only two categories that exist in God's eyes. Those who surrender their lives to him based on Jesus' death and resurrection and those who never do that. That's it. Which camp do you live in? The one where the only thing to look forward to at the point of death is eternal banishment from God's presence to a place called hell? Or the one where we get God's presence in our lives now and the full assurance that we will enjoy him for all of eternity someday? Which camp do you live in? If you've never made that decision, if you've never come to God in repentance and personally accepted Jesus as the substitute and therefore savior of your sin and king over the rest of your lives, do so today. That's the only way to move from the place destined to end in a world of eternal torment and darkness to a place of having God's peace in the here and now and a heavenly home to look forward to. Again, that's it. Jesus may have seen the look on Nicodemus' face as he sang all of these things that are completely foreign to Nicodemus. So he follows that up with this, verse 7. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. This statement establishes what Jesus just said as the required policy of God towards humanity. Nothing changes that. It's just as legally binding as any legal document is. 
We can't be amazed or astounded or dumbfounded or stumble all over or rail against this being the only way that God has established that any human, regardless of who they are, can and will enter his kingdom. What we should be is grateful that God even made a way for us to be reconciled to him. Jesus is very, very clear about this. There's no way, you tell me, is there any way around the words, you must be born again that we just read in verse 7? Is there any way around that? No! And these are straight out out of the mouth of Jesus. This is a universal requirement that's been binding ever since Jesus said these words. No one at any point after Jesus made this known can escape, excuse away, or justify this requirement. No amount of prayers, confessions, sacrifices, religious customs, money, or good deeds addresses or skirts around this. You must be born again. To anyone who accepts Jesus as just this cool dude who just accepts anyone, no matter what they think is okay, this statement is absolute. You must be born again. This is, there there, there is no relative truth, for there is no way around this absolute statement of truth that Jesus declares here. Again, you must be born again. This absolute statement means that we have no control over it. We are God's creation, God has his standard, and we will never measure up to God's standard of holiness. God is the one who created a way to be reconciled to him, so we can only be reconciled to him through that way. We have no say in it, no matter how much we rail against it. Not only that, but the Bible tells us in Psalm 139 that God recorded each moment of each of our days in his book before he even created the universe. What that records also includes whether or not he's chosen us to become one of his children. We can't really wrap our minds around that biblical truth, nor are we meant to. All we can do is answer God's call when he gives it to us. Since we're God's creation, and he's recorded what he's decided about our eternal fate before he even uttered the words, let there be light, it's up to him as to how and when he calls us to put our faith in Jesus for the salvation from our sins. How he does that is by using the Holy Spirit to work and churn in our hearts and create in us a drive to come to him in faith. To illustrate this theological truth, Jesus uses the concept of wind that we referenced at the beginning of our message this morning. Verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. As noted by one biblical scholar, Jesus does a play on words here that isn't really captured in the English translation, but actually unlocks what Jesus is really getting at here. The word that John uses here in the Greek is pneuma. Here's what unlocks this verse for us. Does this word look familiar to anyone, especially in a medical sense? Right? It's the same root as the condition 
pneumonia. What is pneumonia? It's an infection and inflammation of the lungs. Pneuma in the Greek means breath. So the connection to lungs, but in a bigger sense, it also means wind in the Greek. Want to take a guess at how the word is also used in the ancient Greek language? It's also meant to refer to a spirit. Breath, wind, spirit, it's all the same word. In the context here and elsewhere in the New Testament, it's also used to refer to the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is making a play on words here to talk about the movement of the Holy Spirit and likening it to the movement of wind. Now, did Jesus just have no clue how wind worked? Because he's saying, we don't know where wind comes from or where it's going. I just showed you a diagram of where it comes from and where it's going. Did Jesus have no clue as to how any of that worked? We can understand, we can understand how wind works scientifically. So why did Jesus describe how people don't understand where wind comes from or where it's going? It's not so much about whether or not people understood the scientific concept of what produces wind. What Jesus is getting at here is that no matter how much we understand it, we still can't control it. No matter how much we may understand it, we still can't control it. Now, obviously, humanity has been trying for a long time to affect weather patterns, but when it comes down to it, has anyone been able to stop, say, a hurricane or a tornado, the most extreme forms of wind, from leveling entire cities? No. No matter how much humanity tries, they will not be able to control the wind. Where it comes from, nor where it's going. In fact, God created the world, as we referenced at the beginning, to have these trade winds and to be affected by where the sun heats up the earth and where it doesn't to show that humanity has no control over it, no matter how much we wish we did. No one will be able to affect the earth's rotation, nor the way the sun hits the earth, and as such, no one will be able to control the wind. It will always be out of our control. That's exactly why God created it the way that he did. And you know what? I wonder if he did so with one of the purposes being so that Jesus could use it as an illustration and it remained the same when we're talking about it even 2,000 years later with the same effect. What's Jesus' point? Just as we as humanity have no control over the wind, nor will we have any control over the spirit. We have no control over if, how, or when God will use the Holy Spirit to lead someone to faith in Jesus. We have no control over it. In whose control has the wind always been? God's. And in whose control has the Holy Spirit's movement to leading someone to faith always been? God's. That's why Jesus uses this illustration. Jesus knew all of this when he was talking with Nicodemus, and that was exactly his point, even if Nicodemus himself didn't necessarily get it. Even today, when meteorologists are trying to track a hurricane's progress and direction, are they ever really sure about its intended track, especially early on? 
Never. You got like five different tracks that it could go on. There are usually at least a few different possible tracks, at least at the beginning of a hurricane's formation. In that way, and at that point, it's a mystery as to what that hurricane is going to do, where it's going to go, what it's going to do. In the same way, it's a mystery as to why God has chosen some people to put their faith in Him and who God chooses. Many other preachers have said this, so this isn't new. But we're going to be surprised by who we're going to see in heaven when Jesus comes back for us. And we're going to be surprised by who isn't there. That's why the one way God created us to be reconciled to him is so shocking. Someone could be the most moral, good-hearted, most sacrificial and charitable person to have ever existed. And guess what? That's still not enough to enter God's kingdom. On the other hand, someone could be spending time in jail for murder and come to God in repentance through faith in the death, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that person will be with God for eternity. But you know what? See, that doesn't sit well with us as humans, does it? That doesn't sit well with us. Just as what Jesus had told Nicodemus didn't sit well with him. God is telling us as well, don't be surprised. Don't be amazed. Don't stumble all over this and don't rail against me for this. Just as you have no control over the wind, you have no say in how I pour out my grace. I think for most of us, we're grateful that God looks past our multitude of sins and only looks at Jesus' righteous blood covering us. To think that anything about God's establishment of his plan of salvation uh, is something we have any right to an opinion about, is what? It's a pharisaical way of thinking, just as Nicodemus thought. Remember, the Pharisees believed you could have control over your entrance into heaven by how well you followed all the rules and therefore you could point at certain people and say that person will not enter the kingdom of God and that person will. Jesus dismantled that entire foundation of belief through several parables that explain that it's not necessarily apparent all the time. It's all up to God's grace and that's directly connected to the mysterious flow of the wind. We need to be discerning sometimes as to someone's state of salvation, especially when it comes to false teachers. But for the most part, we need to leave someone's state of salvation entirely in whose hands? God's hands. It's not our right to just point at different people and say, that person's saved and that person isn't. That's not our right. That's only God's right. Ultimately, what we think about a person, when it comes down to it, what we think about a person does not change what God thinks about them. All in all, we just need to be grateful, and overwhelmingly so, if God has chosen us to put our faith in him. Here's the million-dollar question. In terms of inflation, here's the billion-dollar question. <laughs> How do we know if we've been chosen? Because of what we just read in our passage this morning. It's the Holy Spirit who will move in someone's heart to truly commit themselves to him. If he doesn't, then they won't. It's really very simple. 
It may even take years for someone who may have made that decision as a child, walked away for decades even, and then the Holy Spirit brings them back. Whatever the situation, it will only be the Holy Spirit that leads someone to faith in Jesus or leads them back to faith in Jesus or doesn't lead anyone to faith in Jesus. Paul says, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. Do you see what the emphasis is on? Is the emphasis on any of us at all? No, it's all on God. For God knew his people in advance. He chose them to become like his son. He called them to come to him. He gave them right standing with himself. And he gave them his glory. It's all about what God does towards us. He also says, For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it. Man, that is huge right there. We can neither choose it nor work for it. That is a difficult truth to come to grips with. But as with everything else in our lives, all we can do is trust God with it. His reasons oftentimes will be as mysterious as the power and direction of wind. But his plan is and always will be perfect for our lives. All we need to do is trust God and be grateful for God choosing us. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit himself is the proof that you've been chosen. Look back on your life. If you see changes in your life since putting your faith in Jesus, that's proof of the Holy Spirit indwelling you and transforming you. Obviously, no one's perfect. And we will all still fall into sin from time to time. But if you can see a gradual spiritual progress in how you used to relate to those sins in the past, you have the Holy Spirit, and that is the proof that you have been chosen. Paul references this truth when he writes, For you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. So that's the proof. The Holy Spirit is the proof. And he also says this, For his Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. If you're still struggling with it, ask God to affirm that you are his child, and he'll do that. So if you can't look back on your life and know there was a time when you came to God in repentance, seeking his forgiveness and surrendering your hope of eternity to the fact that Jesus paid for your sin and death and rose again to life to give you the Holy Spirit and entrance into the kingdom of God, but you feel a moving and churning in your spiritual self right now, answer that call. Don't put it off. Don't say, maybe I'll give it a day or two to think about it. Answer that call 
right now. If you prayed a prayer of repentance and commitment to Jesus a long time ago, but you've walked away from it for a long time, and you also feel a moving and churning in your spirit, answer that call. That churning is the Holy Spirit bringing you to faith in Jesus for either the first time or leading you back to him right now. So answer that call. If you're feeling that spiritual churning, pray to God. Tell him that you've come to the realization that no one, including yourself, can measure up to his standard of holiness and be good enough to enter his kingdom on your own. Tell him that you believe that Jesus, as God, lived a sinless life to pay for your sin as a substitute on your behalf by dying for you and then proving he's God by rising again from the dead. Tell him that you're repenting of your life led by sin to be led by the Holy Spirit now and a life pleasing to Jesus. And then live out that life in the power and guidance of that Holy Spirit. Again, that's it. And let us all be grateful for God choosing us to put our faith in Jesus. Not everybody has that, wants that, or cares about that. For us, it's our only hope. Amen? Praise God that he wanted to save us. Praise God that he has chosen us. Praise God that he drove us to faith in Jesus. Praise God that Jesus will come back for us. Praise God that we have an eternal home free from corruption, disease, brokenness, and death waiting for us that Jesus right now is preparing for us. And praise God that when he calls us to enter that home, it's his perfect timing and we can trust him with that and for that. In the meantime, praise God that he's leading us, convicting us, teaching us, and giving us the wisdom, love, peace, joy, and strength that we need. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We only covered a few verses this morning, but man, there was so much packed into those few verses. We thank you that for those of us who care about it, those of us who can look back and see that we repented and gave our lives to you, and we can see the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, thank you for choosing us. We are grateful for that. And Lord, we have no clue who else out there you've chosen. So we'll just share your word and your gospel of salvation to everyone we meet. Because we have no clue who you're going to work in. And Lord God, we thank you that you are sovereign. You are in complete control over our lives and in complete control of this world and in complete control over the future. All we have to do is entrust ourselves to that truth and that peace. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.